Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's going on, brother? Chilling, man, as, as per usual. How about you? I'm doing pretty well, man. I can't complain. Um, I hope everyone is doing well, and um, I guess we'll just get started right away. We're recording late right now, so we gotta we got to keep the show moving. It's a school uh, night, and we've got a bedtime. Yeah, it's a school night. But yeah, I wanted to give like an update and then go into a more interesting topic. Um, that we mentioned last uh, last episode, um, we wanted to talk about Iran and uh, keep that conversation going, specifically about the latest updates. And if you guys have heard, so I, we last left off with the U.S. saying that they could potentially bring in 120,000 soldiers. Or more. Uh, or more. <laughs> somewhere in the Middle East. We don't know where. That was intended to say, well, 120,000 extra soldiers in the Middle East somewhere. They're going to be a ground force for invading Iran. Right. Well, it doesn't seem like that's actually really likely. And um, the reason why I don't think it's very likely is because I think the, the most people who are level-headed, I think pretty much everyone who has a straight head on their, on their neck, understands that there would be a huge consequence of invading iran meaning lots of lots of dead servicemen which we all don't want obviously and um now they're kind of playing it off saying that well we're not going to do that anymore it's going to be you know we're going to request ten thousand troops there's and, no more uh, threat yeah the, the threat's really not there anymore and the reason why that threat's not there is because of our tough rhetoric you know like they back down <laughs> so <laughs> hard ass backpedal yeah, it, it, you can just kind of tell that it was just a bunch of grandstanding. That was that's what we said last uh, last episode that it wasn't very likely that there was going to be an invasion, um, a, at least a, a ground invasion in Iran, because I think everyone knows the risk. Like people have known the risk for many years, and um, we live in a Western country, and Western countries cannot stomach casualties. Nope, it's. It, no country soldiers, should like frankly no country should stomach casualties well here's the thing countries have a really hard time stomaching casualties when it's a war of choice right so when somebody is five thousand miles away from you and they die in some desert you're gonna be like what the fuck 
why did 20 Americans die this weekend in some desert? Right. I don't even know where this, I don't I have zero clue what this, you know, this province is. I don't know where this country is. Why, why is my, why did my neighbor's kid just die? Um, it's really hard to, to justify that when you're, when you have like some grand moral mission, I guess they try to do that with Iraq. It's easier to make the case for those casualties, but it's going to be very hard to create that grand moral justification for invading Iran. Like, mm-hmm. what are you going to say? Uh, 20,000 American soldiers died because they, someone who may be connected with, with, uh, with Iran blew up a Saudi tank oil tanker. That's why all these people died. So it's like really, it, it'd be very, very difficult to create that moral justification for a land invasion. So that's why we never thought that would, that would uh, actually happen. And um, before we get started, I, and this topic kind of really leads into uh, what we want to discuss. We mentioned this last episode that uh, we wanted to talk about the war games that took place, which, which can give you kind of a taste of what war in Iran would actually be like. And uh, the war game was called the uh, Millennium Challenge uh, 2002, not the Millennium Falcon. The MCO2. I, I think Millennium, first thing I think of in my head is the Millennium Falcon as well. <laughs> I need to make a correction as well. Um, so I, last time we spoke, when I, when I referenced this, this war game, um, I said it, was actually, it took place uh, two years ago. That's not true. I was actually 15 years off the mark. It took place in 2002, hence Millennium Challenge 2002. Right. So, uh, yeah, I just want to make that correction before we get started, but it's a good segue, um, I guess, into, I guess, a number of different things that we want to touch on, like potential war, just like uh, how military simulations take place. Think different, like just thinking processes. Um, why don't you take it and, and kind of explain what is the Millennium Challenge? Yeah, so the uh, Millennium Challenge 2002 uh, was originally plotted up and run by the currently defunct U.S. Uh, Joint Forces Command or JFCOM, JIFCOM, um, and basically. What it did was it, it well first of all it was the most expensive and ambitious uh, like military simulation in American history. This thing was massive. Uh, it involved thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. Uh, it cost again two hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, but basically, the 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 to sum it up, it, it was the U.S. military um, against a like nameless. Uh, po- you know, adversary in the Middle East somewhere, uh, though it was pretty widely understood that we were talking about Iran, right? Um, and uh, basically, they they did a military exercise, a war game, if you will, uh, pitted the two sides against each other, red team versus blue, where red team was the the uh, nameless adversary and blue team was us, um, and uh, see what would happen. And I guess the intention was to test out new military strategies. Uh, and new military technologies and kind of to prove, uh, you know, prove out, um, you know, kind of these, these forward thinking uh, uh, strategies for the military. Do you have any, any color for that, uh, Henry? Anything I might Yeah, so the, the U.S. Joint Forces Command, basically it was focused on military transformation. Um, 
and what that means is they they did things like joint training and experimentation and how to better integrate like military warfighting capabilities. So they mm-hmm. handled like um I don't want to say think tank type stuff, but they they handled just different training exercises which included, you know, large-scale war games like the one that took place in 2002. Um, another thing I'll add is that, so the, what the scenario was, it sounds like a Call of Duty game. Yeah, totally is. I mean, it basically is a big Call of Duty game that mm-hmm. a bunch of generals are playing with each other. Right. Um, like, the exact scenario of what they set up was that a rogue military commander had broken away from his government somewhere in the Persian Gulf, and he was threatening to engulf the entire region of war. And he had a, he had a, a pretty big power base, and he came from a very strong religious and uh, ethnic sect, and uh, he was harboring and sponsoring four different terrorist organizations, mm-hmm. and he was highly anti-American. So they were pointing, they, they were setting up that adversary. Right. So and that's the, the plot of the video game. Yeah, right? that's the plot of the video game. And the way they do it in these war games, or at least the way that, um, the, the way that um, the U.S. Joint Forces Command did it is that they would set up a red team and a blue team. Right. And the blue team would always be, you know, U.S. forces or U.S.-backed forces. Uh, they would be the good guy. The, the, that would be the playable character. Right. And then they'd set up a red team as well, which would be, the you NPCs, know, whoever. The NPCs, the non-playable characters. The, the bad NPC characters. Mm-hmm. Um, or the terrorist in Counter-Strike or the Zergs in StarCraft. Mm-hmm. I don't know, however you want to say it. <laughs> um and they'll just set up different types of um, objectives. Yeah, yeah objectives. Yeah. So, for example, in this war game, the blue team's mission was securing shipping lanes, right. like things that we we would want to do if we Taking were in out war en- with enemy Iran. enemy uh, weapons capabilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, compelling the the other country um, to abandon its, its goal of regional hegemony, um, having the government back down like that would right. be in the, in the, in the goal. Those are the objectives, right? And like in the red team, they would be trying to just in reality, just preserve the ruling regime and then and reduce the overall presence of the blue of the blue forces in that region. So, I mean, pretty, pretty straightforward stuff of what you could imagine would be the objectives in a war between the U S and Iran. Um, the, the, the war planning, this was a pretty big project, as Danny mentioned, uh, 30,000 troops, uh, a quarter billion dollars, and a quarter billion dollars is more than some countries spend and have in their entire military budget. So right. it's a pretty expensive project, and right. it was started, they started planning it back in 2000. Yeah, is there anything I missed right there? No, I don't think so. I think we, sh- we right. should probably set up like, all right, cool. We got this whole game. We have the scenario. We know what the missions and the objectives are. Like, who is playing the game, right? And I think I can take over from here. So the 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 players of it. So it's important to mention that there was also a white cell, right? It says red team and blue team, but the white cell is basically like you know the dungeon master, right? Every time I think of these war games, I think of like, you know, a bunch of generals sit down at a table and like they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. He's like, oh, I move my tank 50 yards. All right. Roll the 20 sided die. That's essentially what's happening here. Uh, Lightning bolt. (laughs) Lightning bolt. Um, But uh, so so the 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 white cell commander uh, was uh, JFCOM or JFCOM commander Buck Kernan, who has a pretty dope name. 
Um, so he, Buck he was pulling the strings. He's the dungeon master. He's the guy that's going to be responsible for setting up the scenario. And also like his, his task was to make sure that we were playing by, uh, free play rules. Right. And that nobody was bending the rules or doing bullshit. Like, I don't know. I summoned the God of lightning to, you know, to like strike down my enemies or some weird shit. Um, so that was him. Uh, so then on the red team, uh, we've got retired Marine Corps three-star general Paul Van Riper, uh, and he's an absolute badass. Uh, he had been retired for like two to five years or something like that from the military, and then they brought him on be- because of his previous um, uh, engagements uh, in previous war games. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, and then finally, uh, on the blue team, uh, commanding the good guys is uh, Army Lieutenant General B.B. Bell, uh, for the blue team, um, and that's those were the players. Do you want to play a game? I have a stick of dynamite attached to your testicles. Now answer this riddle and this complex math problem, <laughs> and think about all the times that you masturbated. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, I guess let's like go into. Let's go into kind of like what the blue team was doing, because that's really interesting. Yeah, like how, was, how it was conducted, I think, is also important, uh, too. How it was conducted and what they were hoping to accomplish with that. I, I think going in, the blue team had very specific goals. I mean, the U.S. had very specific Correct. goals in mind. Mm-hmm. And I think they were going through some confirmation bias as well. They were trying to prove... They were coming to a realization, the Pentagon at least was, that the old days of tank battles and trench warfare, trench warfare <laughs> yeah. and, and rushing the battlefield with Sherman tanks. Um, or like these long, drawn out, like drudge wars. Like that was yeah, over. Yeah. They were coming to that realization that that wasn't really going to happen. Mainly because there was not a single military on the face of the earth that could go toe-to-toe with the U.S. war machine. Like, right. it would just be impossible. So they came to that realization that a war in the future was going to be most likely something like an insurgency. It would be with—the it would the war would be a war on— on like the societal habits of a country to change them almost like it'd be it would be a lot more complex than just you know winning a battle or two so basically they were using they were doing a lot of probability stuff so they were trying to predict they 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 had like a decision making map you know if the enemy does this then we'll do that if the enemy does this it will do that and it will evaluate things on like different levels not just military wise it evaluated things on a on a on a social level, on an economic level, as on a political level, and of course the military level as well. But it combined all those different methods together to kind of, to come up with like the perfect solution. So mm-hmm. it was like highly computerized. Um, they were really they wanted to see if this type of prediction uh, algorithm would be able to lift the fog of war. Let's go into like the actual. Like what? What actually happened with this? Yeah, I think that's that's. And I definitely want to want to touch on one point just to add a little color there. Is so, the 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 war exercise was mostly computer simulation, right? So a general would tell, um, you know, the white cell, the 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 middle team, we're doing X, 
and then they would crunch the numbers and they would get an output out of it. But a big portion of this was this giant live fire exercise where they actually moved human beings in, uh, you know, around areas to do these maneuvers to, like I said, prove, like you said before, prove out whether or not these new strategies would be viable, right? Uh, and that was only planned for a little bit later in the game. The early stages of this, uh, and Henry, I know you had a really good line on this one. The early stage of the game was just like, get there, control some shipping lanes, and like, like move quickly. And this, and that's where it, you know, the whole game got flipped on its head. Um, but it's really important to talk about that live fire exercise because this is what was mandated by Congress, right? They were like, you need to go out and do some real stuff to figure out um, how effective and how lethal our, our forces are and gain knowledge so that we can be better at war, right? So this was like, that was the big, big point on it. Now, Henry, you want to walk us through like what day one looked like and how it got kicked off and started? So they parked an aircraft carrier battle group uh, right offshore the red team's country, so fictional Iran. And they issued red team an eight-point ultimatum of which the final point was to surrender. And uh, Van Riper, he knew that his country's political leadership, they wouldn't be able to accept this. And he believed that blue forces were going to, they were going to directly intervene and they were going to also preemptively strike. Right, and that's a part of that Bush doctrine, right? Yeah, of, exactly. Of jumping out and do these preemptive strikes as a defensive measure uh, to like an immediate or perceived future threat uh, to the security of the U.S. Exactly. So he, he basically, he figured that they were going to strike first, though in his head already, it's like, I'm going to have to probably strike first in order to get a shot off because we'll just be annihilated if we don't. So what the blue team does is they don't, they don't surrender, obviously. So the blue team, they knock out his, their microwave towers and they cut their fiber optic lines. And um, the reason why they did that is because they're trying to force them to, um, to use they radio. Wanna, yeah, they want to monitor satellites and cell phone communication and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to force them um, to engage in a communication process that the U.S. could heavily monitor. And that's because their prediction chart, that's what they told them what to do. And what Van Riper does, which is very interesting, is that he is just like, okay, like I figured that was going to happen. And he started using motorcycles and, and uh, cor uh, couriers and motorcycle um, couriers, right? So they yeah, car motorcycle carriers and, and to, to, to communicate messages. So. He, de he didn't fall into that trap. He didn't use cell phones or use that. He was still able to communicate. It gets really interesting, too, because, like, in, in addition to these, like, literally sending people on motorcycles to send messages around the country on what to do, he also started doing some pretty interesting things. So uh, in the Muslim faith, there is a, a thing called the Adhan or Azan. I'm probably butchering this. Sorry for our Arabic listeners out there. Um, it, it's, it's basically, uh, like, five times a day uh, on a loudspeaker, they'll like say a prayer right and they'll they'll broadcast this out loud and this is very common uh among muslim nations but they were hiding coded messages in them on when to strike and since this happens five times a day this is a pretty regular mode of communication right um and another one that i picked up on was they were basically hiding coding mess coded messages in the light patterns on their airfield airstrips right so like they would change the pattern in the light the airstrips to indicate what to do and when to do it so Van Riper was really, really clever, you know, in, in his method of, 
of like how to uh, get around the issue of, okay, I can't use fiber optic. I can't use regular, you know, encrypted modes of, uh, of, of communication. I have to figure something out that won't give away my position or what I'm about to do. And I think that's, that's pretty incredible uh, for, of him to think of. But when you think about it, though, it's like, yeah, it, it's like it's, it's in, intuitive and it's resourceful. But if he's able to think of that, then he's not the only person yeah. who would be able to think. Yeah, of that, I mean, he's not know? like a, he's not like the only genius that can figure it, it out, right? I mean, it doesn't even take genius level ability to do that. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not trying to take a hit at him right now. It's very resourceful, and he's a, he's a great general. And I've I've uh, listened to um, Paul Van Riper's other stuff. Like he's a he's a very smart educated guy and he, he's definitely an academic um as far as generals go a, a lot of those i feel like a lot of those vietnam era officers a lot of them were they, they, you know if they weren't academics at the time they became academics uh because there was so much analysis after the vietnam war of what went wrong mm-hmm. so i think a lot of generals and officers at that time took a very academic approach to uh like figuring out like new ways and war to make it better right so this guy was definitely a student. I know he came. He was a historian as well. So, um, you know, smarter than your average cookie, obviously. But like, I don't think that that unique those unique instincts would be, um, just yeah, lost on an Iranian on an Iranian commander. Just like think about this: Iran has been dealing with crazy sanctions for decades at this right. point um they went through a catastrophic war um regime they, changes all all the they've gone tricks. through a lot of a lot of really bad things so i would imagine that their population and their military corps and they have a good military mm-hmm. um the iranian revolutionary guard by all means is is, is very elite as far as Middle Eastern military uh, units. So I, I would think that someone would be able to think of something like that and right. have a plan like that. Right. If he's able to think of it, I'm sure the Iranians would be able to think of the same thing. So, yeah. On that note, though, so, like, what happens was, you know, the U.S. goes in, blue team goes in, and they're like, hey, we got this on lock. We cut their communication. We sent out our eight-point um, uh, 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 ultimatum on them. We've, we've got this in the bag. All we got to do is, like, you know, hit them hard and land our troops and then take over the country. But Van Riper's smarter than that. So dude basically crunched the numbers and figured out how many so so these these military vessels like the 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 carrier groups have these Aegis anti missile, anti rocket like auto cannons, right? And they're pretty incredible, right? They have the ability to track and shoot down out of the sky missiles that come at them. And it's really, really effective. However, there is an upwards limit to how many rockets these things can take, right? And they crunched the numbers, they did some data, and they figured out we know exactly how many they, we think they can take, and they launched more. So as soon as, as uh, the, the blue team crossed that like point of no return where they couldn't back out and retreat, Van Riper unleashes a huge barrage of missiles uh, from ground-based launchers that they already had, but also... They hid them in commercial ships. Uh, they flew airplanes at them, but they were flying them super low uh, and airplanes that didn't have like radio comms to like so that they wouldn't get caught by radio radio like uh, um, like radar. Um, and also, this is the craziest part. 
he would load a ton of like small boats, fast, fast moving boats uh, with explosives, like, and just do straight up suicide missions, right? They would run up on, on the ships and just blow themselves up like to hell with it all. And it was effective. Um, so basically they got overwhelmed, the, the carrier group and Van Riper was able to sink 19 U S ships, including the carrier, several, like a bunch of cruisers, uh, and, and, and some other ships as well. And by Van Riper's um, uh, uh, own accounts, he said it was over in like 10 minutes. So remember that he just this is just like kind of like the political thought. He, he knew that the U.S. would preemptively strike. Right. So, so he wanted to hit them or the first, blue first. team would preemptively strike. Right. So he was like, I need to get the first shot. So when he sent out like the, the second day, it let off with a small he put a, a small fleet of boats in the Persian Gulf. And they were initially there just to track the ships. Um, however, they just fired without any type of warning. Mm-hmm. Like they just fired and they just attacked without warning and it resulted in, yeah, 19 U S ships were sunk. It was massive. Um, it was massive. Yeah. Including a carrier cruisers, five and, and amphibious ships. Um, yeah. And the whole thing was over in five minutes. And when that happened, the re- the response was like, you know how you, if you play pool mm-hmm. and, Let's just say you pay five bucks to play pool at a bar, right? Because it's always, un- it's always ridiculously expensive to play pool at a bar, right? Or maybe it's just bars that I go to because I live in Manhattan, where they try to like s- screw you everywhere you go. Um, but if you knock in your eight ball on your first turn. Most likely, you're gonna just pretend like the eight ball it didn't happen or something like that, or catch catch the eight ball, put the eight ball back on the table, or do something so you can continue playing because you just paid five bucks for it. Right. So that was the response of the of of the blue team. Yeah, they basically, it was, it was just, ridiculous. They respond to everything, so they just you know they were just like, oh, resurrection, resurrection power. Yeah, they just respond like like it was a video yeah. game. But but what was crazy though was that Bell. I mean. This is where it starts getting really controversial and weird. Uh, if you remember earlier on, I mentioned that you know the live fire, like forcible entry part, um, which was arguably probably the most expensive part of this whole thing, that like mobilized thousands of people to do a live fire exercise. Like they had to do that part. You know, the fact that that Van Riper got this giant early win, like could not stop the fact that they had to redo it. So. You know, maybe you want to give them some credit and be like, "Hey, we already like we already paid for this. We got to do it." You know, whatever. Like you said, I already put my five bucks down on the table. Let, let's put the eight ball back on the table so that we can keep playing and see what happens. Right? That's one thing. But like, Bell basically just asked, you know, uh, uh, Kernan, like, "Hey, can you just <laughs> respawn my ships real quick, dude?" All right, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um. So they they hit the reset button and they kept going, um, and they learned about the you know like like van riper's playing style from it right they're like okay this dude's crazy um and he's gonna do some ridiculous shit so you know we have to play by a different game and then what happened was you know kernan ended up started at that point started changing the rules like middle of the game so he was like all right you can't you can't do that anymore you're acting out of character and it really kicked off when we were doing the live fire uh exercises when 
so the, we've got these V22 Ospreys, right? And these were these were brand new planes. I don't even think that they were that they were being used at the time, but they were bought and paid for in development. And they were like, all right, we're going to use them now. Hopefully, we can throw up a picture on the screen of what a V22 Osprey is. But it's basically like a helicopter airplane thing, right? And you got the wings, and the wings go up like this, and they got two giant propellers on them, and then it'll vertically take off. They're troop carriers, right? And then they put them forward to fly forward. It's a badass plane, um, but uh, uh, Van Riper knew that they were going to use them. And these things have giant, like, radar cross-section, you know, because they're not stealth vehicles at all, right? They're, they're enormous. They're awesome vehicles, but they, 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 you can find them even with, like, really rudimentary and crude uh, radar systems. So Kernan was like, guess what? You can't use radar. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, and then he said, you also can't fire on the, on the V-22s while they're doing the live the live drop right when they when they drop the troops off which is absolutely ridiculous like as if we have these giant flying targets that are easily identified on radar even if you can't use them on radar like you can see them right so if we had ground troops you can probably fire on them they couldn't fire on them and then van riper was like all right well if i can't use radar to shoot them from far and i can't shoot them at all can i use chemical weapons on the ground when when the people hit the ground and they denied him that too because he had access to those chemical weapons those those were you know in his arsenal but they were like nah you can't do that so at this point this is a botched this is a botched experiment this isn't a real game like we're playing with cheat codes now <laughs> blue team's playing with cheat codes yeah and it's just it's just, it's just ridiculous that you do that because obviously you want to so that the most productive part of that entire operation to me is the first five minutes of it on right. day or on the first five minutes of day two, right? When, when um, red team blows up an entire battle group, nineteen ships, and kills twenty thousand servicemen. That was the casualty rate on those twenty thousand ships. Right. It was insane. that's the most pro- that's the most productive part of that entire operation because now you have the knowledge of of dealing with an unpredictable enemy and what makes it even better is that you have you know that your matrix chart your algorithm that you're using to predict everything that's going to happen in the future that it doesn't really hold hold water it doesn't yeah when you're fighting when you're actually in the battlefield like a very famous quote from uh from Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, I know this one, yeah. It's like everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. That's right. Like well that's basically that's what happened. What to happened. Team. Yeah, exactly. It, they got hard. punched in the face. So a, a lot of this information that that I'm getting it from, I know I know Danny and I are both um we got our we did our research from different sources. Um I did most of my research on um on this topic from um Malcolm Gladwell. Mhm. And he wrote this really good book called uh, Blink, and it's all about like decision making processes and things like that. I would recommend it if you're into psychology and things like that. Uh, but he has a whole chapter dedicated to this, and he goes into really good detail. His where he was coming in at on this topic was that sometimes short, spontaneous decisions that are based off instinct are better than decisions that are highly calculated. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And it's very, very difficult to predict humans. Um, I think that's true. I think that's true. Obviously, there's a time and place for those type of, uh, you know, you want to take calculated risk and, and you want to have the data to back yourself up. That's but right. if you rely on it so much, it's just impossible. It's impossible. Like, how many different chess, like if there's two people playing chess, how many different chess moves can they make on their first on their first uh, round? I, I don't actually know that that number. The probability the probability is just so outlandish that they would be playing until the end, until the sun blows up or something like that. I, it's a, it's something just like it's way higher than you would expect. So I I think that you need that 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 firsthand experience, and you need you need to, just because your algorithm says that. You know, this political leader or this rogue commander will do this based off this economic decision, and, and it's just based off the computer. I, I just still don't th- – I just think that's a lousy way yeah, to do it. And, and the insane part about it was, like, even even though they were using these algorithms and things like that to predict stuff, like, they were using some pretty heavy-handed assumptions too, right? So some of the assumptions that they were using were, like, for example, the V-22 Osprey, we weren't, they weren't even in service. We didn't even have those, right? They didn't have – like they were talking about using like air-based lasers that 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 we didn't even have. They were talking about using like uh, uh, high intelligence, like um, oh Jesus, I wrote this down somewhere and I totally forgot. Um, uh, but but basically like uh, uh, intelligence from radar and and satellite, uh, like jointly uh, um, put together, uh, just just stuff that we didn't even have, frankly. Uh, the assumptions that we were making was ins- insane. We were definitely like again, we were playing with cheat codes. It it didn't make any sense. It, it didn't make any sense, and it just shows you something. I think it's like it illustrates a presumption that military technology is always going to give you the advantage in a military engagement, no matter what. Right. I don't necessarily think that's the, that that's the case. I don't think that it necessarily wins you a war. Um, I think what it does is it saves people's lives. Sure. I think that's true. It saves people on whoever has a better technology team. It saves a lot of lives. Like most likely without that technology, you're dealing with a lot more casualties. Um, but it doesn't mean you're going to win the war. And it's been there has been different case studies i think the best case study is afghanistan or vietnam mm-hmm. i think afghanistan is great because like dude there's more there's more there's a bigger insurgency in afghanistan now than there was when we went there right so the u.s didn't win anything mm-hmm. 
And they have far superior technology, far better training, far better everything. But it became but a war of attrition at that point, you know. At, at the end of the day, uh, you know, most U.S. soldiers, the only land they controlled was the land that they stood on, you know. So it's hard to prepare for things like that, especially when you're going to be fighting an enemy on their home turf who's going to be desperate. Like, you don't think that if someone invaded your country, you would fight to the death to defend your country, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we take it a, like a step further, like we can pretend like aliens are invading, you know, the Earth, right? We would do everything in our power to stop that from happening. We would do some crazy shit. Like, um, who's the guy like, like from uh, Independence Day? Will Smith. Not Will Smith. <laughs> Who was also in vacate the vacation movies? That was the dad of the president. It wasn't the dad of the president. It was the um, I forget the actor's name. All right, forget it. W- what about him? So he he flies into the alien ship to destroy it. Right. Well, he did that when, with Will Smith. No, Will Smith wasn't in the ship with them. It was his own. It was like a different plane battle. Oh, when he sacrifices his own life. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. Would exactly. Do that yeah. sort of stuff if you were being uh occupied by some galactic xeno type xenu type exactly character. which kind of points out like those those uh speedboats with explosives and like the kamikaze shit like yeah that would that they would do that randy quaid randy quaid that's the actor's name i did a quick search on that um so important if you have the sources and the material uh you should be able to use it you know it, 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 even in a simulation but then again, this went this this took place in two thousand two, so it was long it was a long time ago. But I mean, do you know anything about the consequences of this? Like, what I know, Van Riper was pissed off. Yeah, I mean, he he quit. By the way, six days in, he was like, "Oh fuck this shit! Like, this is not real." But he stayed on as like an advisor for the remainder of the seventeen days. But he basically said, "Like, this isn't real. Like, we're not. This isn't free play. Like they said, it wasn't an honest exercise." Um, and, you know, they keep changing the rules of, the, of engagement, middle of the game. Like, this isn't helpful, you know. We're not learning anything out of this. And I, and I kind of agree. Like, I, so on the one hand, when Van Riper struck them in the beginning uh, and, you know, they sunk 19 ships, like, I, I get why they would want to reset the ships, right? Because they did have this whole, like, planned thing to, to, to do the live fire exercise, and I get like That's, I get. That I'm honestly part. fine with. I'm fine with that. Yeah, honestly, I, because like, dude, because like they're not gonna go if the, in, in reality. Stop. <laughs> like go, if, game over. <laughs> no, but if that actually happened, most likely the U.S. is not going to continue with its plan. Like, right? It, it's not gonna. It's not gonna go ahead with the ground invasion after losing an entire fleet and having twenty thousand people die. It would be a, a huge catastrophe. Right. And the U.S. would have to. Re- you would, whatever, whatever military would have to regroup. So, yeah, you plan this $250 million war game. Obviously, you're going to want to get your money's worth. Right. Um, so, I mean, I get it just I mean, just for the learnings, right? Okay, cool. We lost that first one. But let's just see if we hadn't lost it, right? How would we conduct this, like, live fire, like, storm the beaches in Normandy type operation, right? But when they decided, like, okay, cool, you can't shoot our airplanes. You can't use no chemical weapons. You can't, like, use radar. You can't use anything. We're just going to storm it, like... You, you you know that's it it's like no dude like no we're not gonna learn anything from that you know like yeah and um just like the handicap like the handicaps was like the big thing yeah 
um, that that's really like I understand the the the, the refloating the ships thing like that makes mm-hmm. sense obviously like but the putting handicaps I I think was was, was dumb um, but it just goes to show you anything can happen mm-hmm. and uh, Van Riper was was very pissed I've I've heard interviews with him um, he basically said that like the level of uh, you know it, a lot of this. A lot of this was just for bureaucratic reasons. There was, right. there, was uh, there was there was political reasons. He said, val- he said like validating a concept that had failed, basically. Yeah, they were trying to validate a concept that had failed. It's a lot for... like the uh, 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 the episode that we did on the um, on the Bradley armored fighting vehicle. You know, like same idea where they were fixing all of the the, the live fire tests and saying like, oh no, this is totally fine. We're going to completely empty the gas tank when we shoot a rocket out of it so that it won't blow up, you know, or we're going to put sand in the bullets uh, instead of like uh, explosive, like actual bullet gunpowder and stuff so that they don't explode, you know. And it wasn't until someone decided like, hey, let's do a for realsies live fire exercise that they exposed all of the, the vulnerabilities of the program and, and then they had to make updates to it. I'll, I'll say this. He did say that was probably one of the worst cases of that going on, mm-hmm. but I mean I don't know if that's happened uh, anymore. That's obviously the most famous, mainly because of just like the the striking numbers involved with it, right. and, like the twenty thousand servicemen in, in the fleet that was destroyed. Right. But um, you have to think like that type of thinking. There's been simulations um, about a potential invasion in the Persian Gulf because I know the team that the country was obviously anonymous, but it was it was Iran, right? You know. Um, well, I mean, like, so the report came out on it. So uh, how it ended was obviously Blue Team won, right? Like, they, they won. They mission success, right? And um, and obviously uh, Van Riper's pissed off about it, and he was, like, writing to a couple people about, like, how he was worried that, you know, some of this stuff was going to leak that um, – and it did leak uh, to the media, to the media, and then uh, J- JFCOM got mad at him for you know uh, speaking disparagingly about it and tried to like backpedal and be like, no, it was totally fine. Like we 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 won. We you know uh, all the things that we set out to to prove, we proved. Uh, and th- but then ten years later, like the actual report came out. Uh, it was it was not public for a long time, so that that got released. Uh, 10 years after in 2012 uh, and it it was 752 pages long and and it talked about how yeah we got caught off guard and 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 uh, um, and a big reason why was because we were using old playbooks you know uh, old playbooks that other people knew about definitely van riper knew about and you know it, the reason why we were perceived to be the winner was because we had advanced technology technology that we didn't even have uh, but also because we're just a, like a better military, and so it was a little bit stacked. And they they go so far as to say that you know in that report, I'm going to read this because I lifted this directly from it. So uh, as the exercise progressed, the uh, op four free play was eventually constrained to the point where the end state was scripted. The scripting ensured a blue team operational victory and established conditions in the exercise for transition operations. Right, so they basically admitted like all right yeah we we fudged this one and i hope that i mean and we've been doing military exercises since i mean we we do them all the time you know like we did live fire training not too long ago in um 
uh, near the DMZ uh, to, to train for the threat of North Korea. Um, I hope that we learned a lot from this and that we conduct more more realistic uh, war games and and uh, and like learn a thing or two because like the the stakes are high, right? This is like human beings' lives could be lost if we're messing around doing fake trainings, you know. If that's a standard practice, and I don't think it is, I don't think that's like the standard mo of people who are doing war games, right. like to make unrealistic uh, situations like that. Obviously, they know that their jobs on the line, and the line of a lot of soldiers are on the line right. for doing things like that on a consistent basis. But um, at the very least, the information is out there. It is a famous story. Um, it's not that much. It's not people don't talk about it that much. Um, I mean, I Which is surprising, obviously. Yeah. I obviously didn't know that much about it because I, I totally um, I got the year wrong in the last podcast. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's it's an interesting case, and I think it um, it is it, a fun topic to cover because I th- it, it, there's a lot of different discussion points. There's a lot of different bullet points to dive into, um, which I which we 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 let off the podcast with. Um, I think the most like con- the, the most um, pressing one is just like the consequence of getting into a war in the persian gulf that's right uh, how difficult it, it doesn't be. seem it doesn't seem like it's going to be very easy to do that and even if that doesn't take place like i, I mean obviously uh it seems like van riper you know played his cards very very well um maybe there isn't a persian military commander who's going to be able to do that but there's going to be some casualties there's going to be even if it's not 20,000 like i, I highly doubt there would be 20,000 casualties on the first day in the um, first 10 minutes yeah the, i don't I, I don't think the us would ever put themselves in a position to lose 20,000 soldiers yeah, definitely not after in that. the first 10 minutes <laughs> yeah. um I, I i think that would be just i couldn't even imagine the us military putting um Right, that's crazier that than nine eleven and Pearl Harbor put together. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to imagine uh, getting into a situation like that, um, the, or at least the U.S. military getting into a situation like those are like World War One casualty numbers. Yeah. Like when the British and the French and the Germans were losing, they had twenty thousand casualties a day. Mm-hmm. Um, that would just be crazy. But yeah, that's why I thought, like, with this context, I think it's important. I don't think any U.S. president is nuts, is crazy enough. The Pentagon uh, obviously doesn't want to do this. They just really want to, uh, they just want to, like, talk tough and be like, oh, let's get aggressive with Iran, let's let's stick our chest out. And uh, they they understand that if they would follow through with some type of military intervention, then it would probably be bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I was talking to you before we started recording this. Uh, I have kind of like a weird theory. I don't know if it's weird, but it's kind of a bro history type thing or bro geopolitics type thing. I, I, I speculate that a lot of the at least this is, this is how I kind of think Trump thinks. It's, it's impossible to really tell how Trump thinks, <laughs> but I kind of I kind of have an I I feel like I have kind of a grasp of how he thinks. Um, he's the type of guy who thinks who's always thinking about deals, 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 deals. I just want to make deals. I, I really do think Trump's instincts tell him not to get into a military conflict, not not to not to engage in a war or at least a war of choice, and 
he would definitely prefer not to do it because every single time that he's he's had tough rhetoric somewhere, he's always he's either he put down. his foot in his mouth. He, he backs out. He puts his foot in his mouth, or there's some type of. I mean, believe it or not, you could say even progress on the other side. Do I don't want to say due to his rhetoric, but I mean like Little Rocket Man, and then they have a <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say that Little Rocket Man. I don't want to give him the credit saying that saying a Little Rocket Man <laughs> made made any made headway on there. Yeah, I, I think that I think that Kim Jong Un in North Korea were 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 looking for yeah. They were already some, the the pieces were in play already, and 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 Moon Jae In from South Korea had been doing a lot of the legwork already. Yeah, they. I think the main thing is that North Korea was already looking for sanction relief. Mm-hmm. But I feel that Trump, I'll get to my point, that Trump wants to put make a, make a scenario or put other countries in a position where if they trade with Iran, then the U.S. will have leverage because they'll be able to penalize them economically mm-hmm. if they do business with Iran. So they want to have Iran as a boogeyman because they know that a lot of countries in Asia – um, I mean, I'm really just pointing out China. China, that China, China gets about 10 percent of their oil from Iran, or um, right, Iran business, sells right. about 50 percent of their oil to China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and most all, likely China is going to do these, it anyway. It's it's all related to these trade wars, right? You know, and even Iran has said like like sanctions or not, we'll find a way to to sell our oil. Like it's going to happen. So yeah, they're always going to they're going to find a way. You're gonna find you just create black markets when you make things illegal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that um, tax I think I think this is kind of related to China in some aspect that that, China. Uh, that Trump wants some type of leverage on on China if they do business with Iran because he probably figures or maybe he doesn't figure this. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I never I never know. He doesn't think at all, and he's just like going off the cuff or whatever. Uh, you know what? Uh, I'm mad today. Uh, I saw something on Fox about Iran. Yeah, yeah. He sees a special on the Iranian Revolution. And you, Na- you know what? Let's just sanction him. Eh, okay. Nancy Pelosi says something to the effect of, like, uh, he's obstructing justice. And he's like, oh, no, I got to take the heat off me for a second. We're going to talk We're gonna talk tough about Iran. Eh, what, what a, eh, I support Nancy Pelosi. She's a great leader. Eh, okay. Eh. Pocahontas. <laughs> I can't wait till we find out who's, uh, I know. until, um, the campaign trail. I know, dude. It's like up. it's like Game of Thrones is over, and now I can't wait till the next season of uh, Who Wants to Be a President? <laughs> America's That's where the real game. America's begins. best top Democrat. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be a load of like very very stupid television. Oh, dude, it's gonna be. It's my, dude, it's my favorite reality TV show. Is political debates for the presidency on well, both sides. Republic- Frank, frankly, on both sides, it's so interesting. The the Republican debates were so much more entertaining than uh, Democratic. Because well, they said the most ridiculous shit. They said the, the most de- ridiculous shit. Because they had Trump. I mean, even before Trump, you remember um, Herman Cain uh, during the the previous election, and is like nine nine nine. I'm gonna make a flat tax rate nine nine nine. It's just like my pizza business nine nine nine. Like they would say some bad shit, weird stuff. But yeah, but Trump just the the interactions between Trump and guys like Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio was just ridiculous because all those guys have giant sticks up their asses 
and Trump is just, eh, you know what, Marco's short. <laughs> like, that would be his response. Exactly. <laughs> eh, Marco's short. <laughs> Jeb's got low energy. <laughs> yeah, look at that, Jeb. Um, what do you say, I am dead. <laughs> the beginning of one of the, I forget which debate it was, but the first thing he said is, is uh, like, before I answer your question, I just want to say, why is Rand Paul on the stage? No one's going to actually vote for him. He has no chance. <laughs> <laughs> just throwing shade. That's all it is. He's, My favorite part of the hilarious. entire election was when, um, I forget, I think it was one the second debate. Somebody asked him about releasing his taxes, his, his tax return. I'm under audit. I can't do it. And he said, the guy who asked the question was like, uh, Donald Trump, when you were on my show, you said that you would release your tax returns. And he said, and Trump responded, he's like, well, first of all, nobody watches your show. <laughs> Sick He's burn, like, bro. First of all, no one watches your show. Lowest ratings ever. <laughs> and at that time, we're just like, I don't even care what he says next. Lo- love it, love him or hate him. There's one thing you have to admit about Donald Trump: you can't stop watching him. Yeah, it's like a train wreck, man. It's just like I, this guy is so entertaining. This guy's a star. <laughs> He's a star. He's entertaining in all the worst possible ways. Uh, he's also hilarious. I give credit. My favorite, I always find myself liking Trump when he does something funny. <laughs> like, I, I have to admit, like, when he called uh, Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, I just, I thought that was incredible. And when he said the Trail of Tears, and that he had that Trail of Tears oh, uh, God. tweet, those are the type of things that I'm like, oh, man. Cringeworthy. This is, this is this is this is great. I mean, yeah. I mean, like all the political comedians give him credit too. It's like you can't make this shit up. Like this isn't even a like a funny like late night TV show joke. Like he just throws it out for them. It's like he's not leaving any good material for you know all the actual comedians. But, but, but those <laughs> but those small those things that he does that people find inappropriate on a social level. Those are the things that I find redeeming about Donald Trump. And then it's like the policy I try to focus on and I try to like – when I have a criticism on Donald Trump, I, I usually focus on what I disagree with, what he's doing as president. I try not to focus on like the dumb stuff, like the the stuff that I find funny. I don't I don't really like to – I think it's like that's what the media focuses on. They yeah, focus yeah, I'm, too much I'm with on that you. They stuff. should focus on the policy. And I do focus on the policy too. It's just I don't think that the things that he does is funny. So it's just like compounding to like my hatred of this person. Yeah, you know, I, guess, like, I mean, that's a know? fair point. It's like your your policy shit and you're an asshole. I don't like anything about you. <laughs> you know. I mean that's that's a fair point if you don't find him funny, but sometimes as long he, as he you, does say you, some shit, it's pretty pref- funny. But like, if you you ha- you have to admit there's moments when you're just like, oh god, I wish I liked. I it's like ah. Oh. And and I know people on the left think this too. It's like I wish I didn't hate. Like I really wish I didn't hate him. <laughs> that was. I hilarious. mean, like, I, okay. So I just started Twitter, right? You know, I just jumped on there. You know, hash uh, at yeah. Danny Danny's on Twitter now. Abdel A B D E L. Uh, so follow me. 
um, tweeting that fire. Anyway, but uh, so I'm like looking at, you know, who should I follow, you know, because I, I want to make commentary on, you know, you know your, your usual basics, right? So I followed all the people on the left, you know, all the Democratic uh, uh, runners. So like I have like a thousand new uh, follows. Like I'm following a thousand people now because that's how big the Democratic field is. Uh, just because I want to see what they're talking about and, and what they're doing. And then obviously Donald Trump comes up as like a suggestion. And I'm like, do I follow him? Because like, you know, he's going to say some shit that I'm going to want to say something about. But at the same time, do I want to give him the satisfaction of a real human being follower? Uh, see, it's like a. What does he have? Seventy million followers. Yeah, like, I don't think. Least... I don't think he'll harp. will be broken. <laughs> yeah, but at least... if, you, if you don't get his follow, <laughs> at least like fifty million of them are like Russian bots anyway. So. Um, no, it's fifty million. Everyone is following him. I, I doubt that it's that many Russian bots. No, no, no I'm, 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 I'm joking, obviously. But he, he did lose a, a fuck ton of followers because Twitter cracked down on a bunch of Russian bot accounts. Um, so there's that. But anyway, that was the dilemma that I had earlier uh, this week when I was like, do I follow him or not? I wonder if there's like a like someone who retweets all of Donald Trump's tweets that I can follow instead of following Donald Trump. Every every journalist ever <laughs> does that? Yeah. All right, cool. So I guess I don't have to then. All right, what are we at right now? All right, we're uh, probably over an hour, yeah. I think. I think we're, yeah, we've been on for about an hour and 20. I'm not sure what the recording is right now, but um, everyone, thank you so much for joining today. I hope you guys got a lot of the conversation. If you guys are still listening, uh, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. Uh, if you're on Apple Pod, uh, if you're on uh, iTunes or listening on an Apple device, um, it really helps our show grow. Um, I've been seeing a lot of reviews coming lately, so I really do appreciate it. Uh, so rate and review. Um, it is. Uh, it really does help us us grow the show. Um, if you really like us, uh, you want to support the show uh, further, we do have a Patreon account where we release uh, like extended podcast as well as our archive selection as well. So the link's in the description below. And uh, Danny, anything you want to add? You want to plug your Twitter again? <laughs> yeah, so that's <laughs> at Danny underscore Abdel, A-B-D-E-L. Hit me up. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.